everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. This podcast is brought to you by howtolicenseyourmusic.com. If you are a musician, a singer, songwriter, if you play in a band, if you write music of any sort, and you're interested in learning how to license your music into television shows, films, video games, advertisements, and so on, check out my website, howtolicenseyourmusic.com. Today, I have a very special guest. I have a saxophone player, a California-based saxophone player by the name of Todd Foreman with me. Todd, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for uh, doing this with me today, Todd. So Todd, like I said, is a saxophone player, and Todd has a really interesting story. Todd is um, a participant in a uh, one of my licensing courses. And I talked to Todd about a week or so ago, and during our conversation, it turned out that Todd um, has actually played and toured with the band Sublime. Todd is a family physician, and so Todd has a really interesting story about touring with Sublime and ultimately coming to a decision that that lifestyle was not well-suited for his particular situation. So I thought it would be great if Todd could come on and share his story, and fortunately, He said yes. So, Todd, you were telling me a little bit more about your background just a few minutes ago. And I thought if you could just give us a little, you know, for my listeners, give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, how long you've been playing music, and how you initially hooked up and performed with the original Sublime lineup. Sure. Great. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I uh, started playing clarinet and uh, saxophone at an early age, probably the age of eight as well as piano and uh, Long Beach. I grew up in Long Beach, California, and I was fortunate enough Long Beach at that time in the 1970s had a great music program in the public school system. Um, Elementary schools all had orchestras and bands. Junior highs had jazz bands, um, and the high schools had great jazz bands that would travel around the country and play festivals and uh, wonderful uh, leadership and, and great teachers throughout and I think that uh, just growing up in the Long Beach scene, uh, and there were a lot of great uh, uh, venues to hear rock and roll and punk rock at the time in the early 80s, I uh, was, was in full swing. And um, as I grew up, I played in different bands. I always uh, focused on sports and academics, but I always loved my music as well. And I always did it for fun. Uh, music mm-hmm. uh, always represented an outlet for me. Um, I thought about it from time to time about making a career out of music, but uh, had so much other stuff going on that I never gave uh, full attention to it or really thought about, hey, maybe I should think about going to music school or maybe I, there's something in the music business I should do. But um, as I as I grew older and, and you have to start making commitments to what you want to do in life, it became a, a much more uh, prescient decision that I'd have to make between uh, a career in academics, or in my case, uh, medicine and, mm-hmm. or music. Um, you really, you can ha- dabble in music, you can have fun and play music, you can have it as a great hobby, uh, but you, if you really want to go for it, as you've probably said and, and told your students a number of times, if you really want to go for music, you have to commit uh, everything you have to it. It's such a, uh, a competitive business, and, um, you know, there's so many great, players out there and talent that you really have to give uh, everything to bear to really make it. So, um, you know, it's interesting for me because while I was going through it and applying to medical school, I was also playing with the band Sublime, 
just because I happened to grow up in Long Beach, California. It's kind of a Forrest Gump story where um, I'm hanging out and buddy says, hey, this band needs a keyboard player. You want to go play with them? And they just happened to be sublime. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, all the hits that you hear from 40 Ounces of Freedom, we were playing that first gig, uh, including uh, songs like uh, uh, Rape and Bad Fish and 40 Ounces of Freedom. And um, it's just uh, when you when you grow up with it in your backyard, you don't ever think that it's going to be plastered all over the world and country someday. <laughs> but uh, so it happens. Nice. So you were invited to play this gig, and you said you played keys at at this first gig with Sublime, but you ended up playing saxophone with with Sublime. How long did you perform with with them? Yes. So I I went to college back east, and then I'd come home to Long Beach every summer, primarily to play with the guys, and uh, it was wonderful. They they every time I came back, it was they came with open arms and allowed me to play whatever I wanted. And one, one thing that was great about Sublime and you might hear in the music is just the eclectic, the eclectic nature of playing any style of music at any time, even within the same song. And, uh, Brad and the guys were really open to different sounds. And so whatever I could bring to the band, whether it be my horns or keyboards or anything else, they were willing to take a listen. Um, and so it was with that, that I was spoiled in playing uh, songs of Sublime and, for example, they played my 21st birthday party in my uh, at my folks' place, and there's a picture of us in my folks' living room uh, jamming with everybody around, and, and that picture is in uh, one of the in, inlays of uh, I think one of the albums. Um, so it was really always for fun. When the guy started, they they did the album 40 Ounces of Freedom and started to get some airplay and getting some traction, getting a record deal. Then things got serious for them. And I was always thought as just a guy that was the horn player that could come in and play if they ever needed me on an album or a track, they would call me up. And I was always there to, to do that for them. Um, but I soon had the decision after I graduated from college that I had to make. Uh, I was also interested not only in music, but in acting. And I decided to take a year off to really think about it, take some acting classes, play with the guys and, uh, apply to medical school. So I had all this happening kind of at the same time. Um, playing music, when I started really thinking about it more deeply, um, being a saxophonist is, is a great thing, but it also can be um, not such a great thing if you're thinking about doing it uh, as a business or being a part of a band. I don't know too many saxophonists that really got a full cut of a band. The saxophone player is more of a hired gun. Uh, there's a lot of great players out there. And uh, unless you start your own band as a saxophonist, I don't know how many how many people get a percentage or a full cut of any band. So there was that dynamic. How does a saxophonist make a buck in the music business? Um, and then the guys in the band had their own demons. Obviously, Bradley had some major demons and mm-hmm. was fighting a heroin addiction at the time. And so that may have made my decision a little bit easier to say, hey, you know, I got into medical school, a great school at UCLA. And why don't I put my eggs in that basket and keep music as a fun outlet for me and not a career? So when you when you made that particular decision, at what point, because you said you, you actually played on 40 Ounces to Freedom, right? You said you played on yeah. five of the five tracks? Yes. So how, how big were Sublime? How big had they already become? 
when you decided, all right, this particular path isn't for me, you're going to go to medical school. What point was that in, in Sublime's career? Yeah, it was early on. So, um, you know, it, 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 I was already kind of a peripheral member just by the nature of me not being around nine months out of the year. So when I would come back and play with them every summer, it was like backyard parties, backyard parties, backyard parties. After a year of marinating with 40 ounces, we'd go to a show at a local bar or restaurant and it would be packed and mm-hmm. all the kids in the audience would be singing the words of the songs. And at that point, it was a different story. It was a serious, serious band. And, um, they, at that point, the, the distinction was made with Brad in conversation with me that I was the horn player, that I was a peripheral member that they want me playing, but that this is a three piece and that this is what they're doing. Gotcha. So it, it, yeah, I understood, you know, by the fourth year, as I was graduating from college, that they were getting serious about the music business, that, I could, if I really, at that point, wanted to commit, it would have to be a full-time thing. But at the same time, I wasn't ready to commit to being a part of that, whatever that might mean, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was really, as as they had their record deal, started getting some play on the radio, that that decision was kind of made for me. And at that same time, I was applying to med schools and getting into med school. So um, they kind of both happened at the same time. Um as I went through med school, my first few years, um, I didn't play with them much. First two years of med school were incredibly intense. Um, they played up in Hollywood once. And I remember taking a bunch of my medical school buddies to go to the show. And, uh, we played, um, we played a gig on the sunset strip. It was just kind of a, you know, a fun, interesting thing. It was like the guys in the band kind of forgot about who I was, who I was, but I got on stage, started playing the horn and it was like, yeah. And we did like three songs in a row and it, it was all the same feel and the great vibe that we had together. So nice. whenever I did get together with them, it was always locked in and we always had a great sound together. Um, they would call me in. I played on one track on their self-titled album, a song about the riots. I played the Barry Sacks that I had borrowed from the uh, of jazz band. Um, and uh, that ended up making it on the record, which was great. And then uh, they did a cartoon theme song where they needed uh, horn parts and I went in and it was like uh, I was in med school that morning. Went to the it was at Ocean Way on Sunset Strip where they were recording this uh, Sunday morning theme song album, and we were doing Hong Kong Fui. And of course, you know, I get out of my car and, and, and go into the studio, and this huge waft of smoke just comes at me, you know. And it's just an entirely different vibe from being in the anatomy lab that morning, you know. I'm sure. And. Uh, they wanted me to put together a whole horn section. They they had brought these kids who a trumpet, saxophone, and and uh, a trombone player that were high school kids, and they're like, uh, we need a horn part. So like on, on the spot, I just kind of put a horn part together for that song, which was really cool. So there's always these unique, uh, interesting, uh, alternate universe experiences that I'd have with the guys every time I would hook up with them every few months uh, while I was in med school. In a sense, that kept me grounded. Uh, it, it made me realize what I was sacrificing to be a medical student, but also uh, what I was gaining by being a medical student. And it was nice to always kind of check in uh, yeah. as I was going through this process. And I always thought, as I was going through med school, these guys were getting bigger and bigger. I went, once I heard what I got and the stuff that was coming out of the self-titled album, I knew that they had a legitimate shot of being really big, and I started fantasizing about them bringing me back in the fold and being part 
of their tour. I know if they got big enough, I know that's what they, they had in mind. Uh, Brad and I had talked about it. Um, and you know, that was kind of maybe what I was thinking was finish the four years med school instead of going residency, maybe going on tour. And of course that was all cut short. Uh, my third year of med school, when I got the call from Eric that, that Brad had died. Um, 1996. 1996, and he died of a heroin overdose, right? He did. He did right before a gig, and uh, or while he was on tour in Northern California, and he had been clean for several months. He had a baby. He got married. He had the record deal. He had the record coming out in two weeks, and something led him back to that for one night. And uh, obviously, as a physician, I know that you know you, and most people know about heroin. If your body's not used to the dose that you're used to taking when you're taking it on a daily basis, he wasn't realizing that his tolerance was low and he took too much and that was it. Wow. So did that, uh, I mean, I imagine that, that, that came as, as, a, as, a, as a shock to people considering he had cleaned up and uh, had stopped using, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of resources. I think that the band owed the record company over half a million dollars for for the um, rehabilitation and the medical care that Brad had received to get clean up to that point. So it was no secret that this was a big issue, and everyone was so thrilled about the new album and thrilled about the possibilities, and, and Brad was married and happily married and had a, a great new son and so much to live for that I think um, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't want to speak to the situation sure. at the time, but it seemed like, you know, he'd beaten it and everything was going in the right direction. So what could happen? You know? Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately how, how, it did. How old was he when he died? Uh, 27. 20, so, so many rock stars at 27, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's something about that age. Something about that, uh, that number. Yeah, um, maybe there's only so many years you can abuse your body the way that uh, some people do uh, before it gets you. Yeah. You know, maybe you get five years or seven years of hard living. Um, maybe it's that I don't know. Um, but it was a, it was a it was pure devastation. Um, you know, everyone was incredibly shocked, and it's like having all of your dreams. Even me on the periphery, having all of your dreams about. It, you know, think about making it in the music business and that's what your goal is. And then you get on a plate on K-Rock and then you get a record deal and then you make an album with these uh, legendary producers and it sounds fantastic. And then you're just on the verge of making it and then it's gone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really and, is. you know, they did make it. And, you know, I think that's evidenced by the fact that, you know, we'll uh, we'll talk a little more about that period in the band's history. But fast forward to was it 2010 when sort of the second incarnation sublime with Rome? When was that established? Yeah, that's uh, the, the they uh, basically Eric Wilson started jamming with a guy named Rome who had been discovered by um um, this guy, Louie, who um, is a great producer at this place called 17th Street Studios in Costa Mesa, California. And, pardon me, Rome um, just uh, started dating a gal that um, Louie was recording in the studio. Mm-hmm. And so he just showed up and started hanging out. And he started playing his guitar and singing, and the talent was noticeable immediately. And um, Lou had been playing in a band with uh, Eric Wilson, the bass player, for Sublime and invited 
Eric to come down and start jamming with him. So one thing led to another and Eric's like, wow, this guy has really got chops. And, um, we knew a, um, a manager named cheese who ended up becoming the manager for the band and, uh, cheese helped, uh, bridge, um, a relationship back between Eric and Bud, a drummer for Sublime, mm-hmm. and Bud was interested and thought it would uh, be uh, cool to have him come up and, and start jamming. So they did, and it, and they had a connection. So uh, they decided to really go for it. Wanted to use the name Sublime once they worked it out with the uh, with um, Brad's uh, widow and heir about mm-hmm. the naming of the band and all that. They ended up uh, using Sublime with Rome they uh, embarked on putting uh, an act together. And so this was happening in 2008, 2009, and I was invited to start playing with them uh, three days before their first gig in front of 12,000 people at a festival in uh, Southern California. And uh, I was ready, though, because I had met, I'd seen this all kind of occur. Mm -hmm. I'd started playing um, with a band when I moved back to Long Beach uh, after just to fill in my career, I'd graduate from UCLA med school, did three years of residency in family practice and started teaching at USC as a professor, uh, in family medicine for five years and lived in, uh, Pasadena. We decided after having our first child, my wife and I decided to move back to the coast and we mm-hmm. landed back in Long Beach, uh, which is a great town with canals and, and waterways and, uh, a great, uh, a family location. So we came back and I started hooking up with some of the people that I had played with, um, in the day. And, and I, I landed myself in a band called third alley and, uh, started jamming again. And one of the bands we opened for one night was at the house of blues in Anaheim was a band called Batfish, which was a, a successful cover band for sublime. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I ended up hopping on stage with those guys and playing and realizing that, wow, there's really a huge following of sublime around here. And Batfish had been together for over a decade and they were filling up house of blues sized venues all over the country and were quite successful touring and tour bus. And you're like, wow, this is pretty big stuff. So yeah. once I saw that, and then when I heard when that, uh, they found Rome, um, then I knew things were happening. And so I started playing more and had met Rome myself, started playing with him a bit, getting my chops down. So, when I got the call three days before playing that gig, I was I was fairly ready to go for it and had gone through the process of with my wife who had kind of expressed um, her her um, acknowledgement of what was happening and she um, for my for one of my birthdays as this was all kind of transpiring she gave me a card that said I know that you've given up music for a long time it's time to go for it. And so my wife, basically the bless, bless her heart. She gave me permission to really go for the music business, which again, you have to give everything to it. If you're going to be successful, um, on that level, you can't just kind of show up after not playing music for five years and expect to fit in. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) And you're, you're saying, and you were saying at this point, you had already had your practice established for six years, you said, right? That's right. I I set up my practice in 2005 in Newport Beach. My mom is my partner, so that's a unique thing. We're both family physicians. My wife's a dermatologist, and so she works too, and we have two young children. So everything was set for the white picket fence. You know, we just got a dog. I mean, everything's like 
set in terms of suburbia and, and having a stable life and a fulfilled life with a family and raising a family. But uh, when I, when all this stuff came back around for Sublime, um, it was something that I just had always had that itch, you know, itch in my uh, back that I always wanted to scratch. And my wife knew that. And your, so your wife gave you the blessing because it sounded like, to me, this whole time, like you sort of had a chance to be with the original Sublime lineup and, and you made this decision to go to medical school and, and they blew up and then unfortunately Brad passed away. So you got the call. What 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 year was was this? Two thousand ten. Now when you got the call, this was uh, fall of two, yeah fall of two thousand nine. Fall of two thousand nine. Um, okay. Yeah, and the show went great. There was a lot of pressure on us. You know, Brom's a twenty twenty year old kid, and uh, the guys um, from Sublime, Bud and Eric, hadn't played together in a decade. So there was a lot riding on it, and there were a lot of people who were skeptical of of us even using the name Sublime or getting back together and playing sure. Sublime songs. So um, there's a lot of pressure for the band and for myself as well. And uh, it went off great. The songs speak for themselves and uh, Rome is a, a huge talent. So that was recognized and we just started um, building what we were going to do for the next, well, they're still doing it now, Sublime with Rome, but um, uh, it, it turned into something pretty darn big. Um and it was it was a great ride while I was a part of it. <laughs> and and how long were you, how long did you perform with them? I, uh, even last summer I played with them uh, when they came through locally, but I stopped performing with them regularly uh, right after our album was made. Sublime with Rome album in the spring of 2011. Okay, so when they contacted you initially, was it clear that they were going to tour and that you were going to be a part of the lineup? When was that sort of established? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's the nature of the guys in Sublime or if it's the nature of the music business or what, but very little is set in stone. Okay. Um, it, it's, you know, from the beginning there was a shroud of, can we even use the name? Will that even happen? And so there was always some doubt on not only my involvement with the band, but is the band even going to happen? Um, and once it did start happening and we had a summer tour lined up and you look at the tour and it's okay, I'm gone for three weeks in July <laughs> mm-hmm. and then, Oh wow. I'm going to Europe twice. And wow, we're flying from France to Brazil. And then, you know, so there's all this stuff that, that keeps coming at you and keeps coming on. And the whole time in my mind, I'm trying to figure out what my role is in the band, what I want out of the music business, what do I want for myself, what I want for my family, how's my practice doing. I would go on tour for a week or two, come back and, and work full-time in my practice, go out again for a week or two or three, come back for a week in the practice. So it was one of these times where we were really juggling. Yeah. Um, obviously, my wife and I uh, grew really strong through this because you can't, you, you, you can't fool around. You know, everything's got to be the communication has to be peerless. You've got to be totally open with yourselves. I mean, think about it from uh, a housewife and a wife's perspective. She was getting it from family, friends, and colleagues, and patients even, saying, you're letting your your husband do what? You're letting him <laughs> go be a, a and, rock star and tour? Yeah, yeah. And so she had to handle all of that. At the same time, give me being so thankful that she's given me this opportunity 
and and, and being reassuring and, and being there for the family as much as I can, but also knowing what sacrifices I have to make to become uh, a player in the band. So um, it was quite something to juggle. It was really not easy. Now, during this period, did you shut your practice down, or did did you keep that going? It was lucky, you know. I had my I had my mom, who was my partner, and I found uh, a guy to cover my practice while I was gone. So we brought in another guy who basically took over most of my practice while I was gone, and he was also flexible enough to have me come back when I came back. I would see some patients and see how the practice was doing, but really, I was I was there, you know, maybe thirty percent of the time at the most um, for what I had built up and what what I had done. Thankfully, it stayed together. I don't know how, but my pa- most of my patients stick w- with me. And um, by the time I was done in the spring of 2011, um, I came back in, and uh, my mom was real thankful to have me back, and uh, <laughs> the practice was thankful to have me back, and I've been able to move forward from then. So you performed with Sublime with Rome for, was it a year and a half total? It was a year and a half total, and uh, full-time commitment, and... Um, I made about two grand a week, uh, to play with them. I wasn't on retainer, uh, so I didn't get paid when we went on tour. And, um, it was a thrill of a lifetime. It really was all that in a bag of chips. It's like a traveling, uh, carnival where you have, we had three big tour buses and a semi truck going around from town to town, city to city, playing these great venues. Uh, probably my favorite venue was Red Rocks, probably most people's favorite venue to play. I wanted to ask you about Red Rocks. What, what was, I mean, I want to know just about in general, the really big shows, but what was that like to perform at such a, a revered historic venue? It was amazing. You know, it, it, again, being a, not in the music business for so many years, it wasn't like I had studied all the great venues or had been to all of them or had pined or thought about or dreamed about playing Red Rock someday or the other big venues at, you know, Jones Beach or the other big venues that we played across the country. Um, so I was kind of learning on the fly the history of these places. And uh, they even have a museum at Red Rocks at the top where you can go in and watch videos. And they've got a lot of memorabilia from different shows there. But just the venue itself, it's like you, you go up into the hills in the outskirts of um, Denver and you can overlook Denver there, and it's just these huge rock formations that form kind of a a, a, a bowl. Yeah. And um, you get there midday for sound check, and there's all these people that are just working out by going up and down the uh, <laughs> the stairs, and because the views are so amazing, and the surrounding areas are just unbelievable rock formations. And uh, we were headlining. Modest Yahoo was opening up for us, as well as the Dirty Heads. And uh, we didn't know that the, 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 we still had about 4,000 tickets to sell on the day of the show. Mm. And uh, for some reason in Denver, we had a big word of mouth where um, we sold out that day. There was a big rush. I don't know if it's nice. just the personality of people in Denver or what. So uh, when we caught wind that it had sold out that day, we were pumped, really ready to play a great show. And... Um, it's just one of those venues you don't forget. It, you know, when you're at a place in nature and the sound is so good and everyone's in that certain vibe and you're listening to those opening bands and you get out there, um, it really is a spiritual experience, something that you never forget. Um, you just play up to the moment, you know. 
And I think uh, most people have that experience who play there. They just kind of want to put on the best show possible because it is almost like a, a spiritual experience while you're up there. Wow. What's the capacity at Red Rocks? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't. I think it might be just under 10,000, like a 9,000 seat venue. That's amazing. I think the most people I've ever performed for is maybe 500 people, which is a pretty cool feeling. I can only imagine stepping out on stage in front of a sea of people. You said the first show back, you played a 12,000 seater when you started playing again. Was that the biggest show you had performed at that point? By far, by far. The biggest show that I'd performed before was when I played with Sublime back in 1993. I played with another place called the Ice House, and there were about a thousand people there, and I was like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> At that time. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, this was a whole different level of, of consciousness. And when you see that, that sea of humanity, it's, uh, you know, Eric Wilson was great about it because I asked him, do you get nervous? And he's like, no, nah, I ain't nervous at all. It's like, you just think of everybody as a dolphin. <laughs> and you're like, just a, a sea of porpoises. Did you use that trick? Uh, yeah, that among other tricks uh, to yeah. get you going, you know. Um, but then uh, we, we uh, through our travels, we ended up playing a huge festival in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that was 80,000 people. Jesus. And nothing can get you prepared for that. I mean, you just, you sit on the side of that stage and you look out and you start feeling this weird, crazy energy. And even Eric Wilson was uh, nervous for that one. <laughs> wow. If you don't mind me asking, do you drink when you perform? Uh, yeah, the, we have a we we had a ritual, uh, and that was um, really you know when you're on tour, you live for that hour and a half or two uh, yeah. for the for the uh, warm up and and when you play. And so what we would do generally is uh, get together about 20 minutes before going on, maybe maybe a half hour, mm-hmm. and uh, our manager cheese is an aficionado of uh, making margaritas. Uh-huh. So we would uh, we would basically all partake in making some margaritas and getting the juices flowing a little bit and just be it's almost like uh, what you could imagine a sports team getting ready for the big game. Yeah. Um, we have the uh, our sound guy come in and and the ritual of putting on the sound pack and making sure that your ears are right, your ears are are, are good to go. Um, and Bud would be on his sticks, you know, warming up on a table or on a chair or something. And uh, we would just start getting into our stuff. You know, Ron would start tickling his voice a little bit and humming some of the songs. And we'd talk about the order of things and are we going to do something a little differently this time or that. And you you just get focused. Yeah. And then you start hearing the crowd and, and they walk you up towards the stage and all the lights go black. We have the same song uh, playing before every um Every every set, uh, we had the uh, I don't know if it was I think it was a theme song to um, Raising Arizona. Okay, um, that that was we had that playing the pre-show ritual. Yeah, and then we get out of stage, and and the best shows were when we didn't have a curfew, when we could play for a full two hours. And as we got going, we we really enjoyed playing together, and we would just go on for as long as they would have us. A lot of places have curfew. Um, where you have only an hour and 10 minutes or an hour and a half set total. And uh, that always seemed too short to me. Yeah. Well, that that's amazing. So you played these huge venues with this super well-known, at this point, sort of iconic band, I would say. I mean, Sublime has definitely 
their music ha- has gone down in history. You're getting $2,000 a week. You know, like, like I was saying when we talked initially, this is for, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware, a dream job for many, many musicians. But you ultimately decided to walk away and go back to being a full-time physician. Why did you, why did you make that decision? Um, it, it's a complicated decision because it is a dream job and it's, uh, it was a, it was a dream come true for me when I got the call, uh, with Eric, Bud and, and Rome on the phone saying, we want you. Um, that had been the culmination of five years of working towards something like that. And just to have that kind of validation as a musician to get back into music and to say, you are a musician. You are good enough to be on this level. You are good enough to be part of this. Uh, was such a fantastically amazing, radical dream come true that, um, you know, anything I say now about how I made the decision to leave, I don't want it to seem like I was either um, ungrateful or not just totally uh, thrilled to be in the position that I was in. At the same time, you know, when you set your life up to um, be safe, and have a, uh, what we call a day job, nine to fiver, and they have a pretty damn good pool day job to be a family doctor. It's a wonderful experience. It's something that's probably had the deepest, um, the deepest, uh, influence on my life is, is what I do on a daily basis with my patients. Um, when I had that, um, prism to look through with two young children who, you know, I really, one of the things when you go on the road and realize what a traveling rock band is and what it does, you realize how lonely it is. I mean, it really is living out of a suitcase, uh, you know, it trains planes and automobiles and hoteling. And I don't care who you are, you're alone most of the time. You're away from loved ones. You're in places that you have no idea. It's not like you get to go when you go to Europe, we went to Amsterdam and London and played there. We were in London like 13 hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not you like you have time to go sightsee. Yeah, you don't. You know, one thing you know around going around the country, I did get to meet up with a lot of friends that I had that are living in various parts of the country. You'd come to the show, but uh, you don't get a lot of free time to do other stuff. Um, so there's that, and then just. I could take it for about a week and then I missed my kids and my wife so much after about a week that you would just be sitting in your bus sobbing, you know, tears streaming down, um, almost on a daily basis, having to deal with that level of, of, uh, you know, separation. And when you're not with the people that you most love and experiencing life with the people you most love, you just, there's an emptiness there. There's something that's missing. And that was, you know, for me, the biggest decision in, in, in leaving the band and not playing full time and staying with that dream job, so to speak. Uh, at the same time, I have to be honest and say that, you know, even though I was uh, a saxophonist, not one of the main players, a drummer or a bass player or a guitarist or a singer, I felt that I had a shot to become a part of the band at some point just because I'd been there from the beginning and using all of my tools as a physician for the band, you know, Obviously, being a personal physician was I could write a book in and of itself about, you know, me bringing my doctor bag onto the road and taking care of uh, uh, two bands uh, full time with all the all the entourage and all the things that you can imagine happening on the road uh, in that scenario uh, as the treating physician. Um, I thought I had a shot to become at least a percentage member of the band. And that's kind of what I was started working towards 
as I got deeper and deeper into it and uh, sacrificing more and more for the band. Uh, and it came to a point where that, when I realized that really wasn't going to happen for me and that I would have to be, um, I'd have to be, uh, okay with being a, um, hired gun, uh, that I realized that that goal was not realistic and that I had to shift gears and think hard about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And, uh, I decided to leave the band after we did the self, uh, the, uh, sublime with Rome album. And, um, went back to my practice and I played with them, still play with them from time to time. I'm in a, a new band with the drummer, uh, Bud. We're doing a children's album, which is something that, uh, had been a dream of mine for some, some time now. And so the interesting thing about going through this process and going for that type of rock and roll stardom is that the music kind of came full swing. Mm-hmm. It's back now where I have a home studio. I'm doing things for me and my music, uh, building a repertoire of my own tunes. You know, I love reggae, I love sky, I love jazz and swing and blues. And I, I love making my own music and I'm doing it in my studio. And I've got the great thing about Long Beach is there's a lot of great players around and, um, I'm able to collaborate and have a great experience with my music staying right here at home. And, uh, I take Wednesdays off instead of playing golf. Like a lot of doctors do, I play music. And uh, I feel like I've achieved that balance after all is said and done. I'm back at home and I've got my priorities set where I want them. And I took back control of my music and where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Now, would I, you know, would I want to give up my day job and be a full-time musician and, and, and be that guy that can make lots of money and be able to support family and go tour and do that thing? Yeah, I'd be silly to say, I I would be dishonest if I said no. I think that would be incredible and something that maybe could happen someday, but it's okay if it doesn't. I had my experience. I had my day in the sun and um, that itch on my back is is not so itchy. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I love your story, Todd. You know, I think a lot of musicians have this dream of playing in a band, you know, the, the size of Sublime and touring and playing some of the venues you played. You actually got to go do it and um, decided to walk away from the opportunity. It wasn't quite a good fit for your lifestyle, but um, but it's amazing that you had the experience. It is. It's great. And it's great to learn about what that is and what that means. I think a lot of people have uh, false notions about what it means to be a a successful musician, even great musicians, even people who have lots of talent. And really, you know, when you listen to it, you say you could make it, but they, they just don't really understand that it is a business. And if you want, you know, if you, if you want to just, stay at home and play local and, and make great music. Great. But don't expect to be, uh, a successful, you know, in terms of, of your finances. Um, it really, even at the top of the top, there's no guarantees. The guys in Sublime could make lots of money for a few years, but then stuff could happen and it's done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You so never, it, you it, never it, know. You never know. And that, that's one thing I'm really, I'm really thankful for my day job. Uh, being a family physician is incredibly stable <laughs> compared to, uh, the music business. And, uh, now what you know, are Sublime with Rome doing these days? Are they still playing the same size venues? Have they maintained that level of touring? 
Yeah, they, they, you know, Bud is, uh, has decided to, to leave the band as well for many of the same reasons I did. Family, he has two young children. Mm-hmm. And um, This is their drummer? The drummer, yeah. So they actually recruited uh, um, Josh uh, Freeze, who's a, who's a fantastic on-call, on-call drummer. Mm-hmm. And he's been uh, filling in for Bud for the past uh, year and a half or two. Yeah. And um, so they've been able to maintain uh, a really top-notch live show. And the music kind of speaks for itself. I mean, fans of that music, they will go see Sublime with Rome. And yeah. it doesn't matter if, if Brad has been long gone uh, or if Bud is in the band or not. I think they'll still be able to sell out uh, venues across the world uh, for fans of the music. And so they're doing well. They've just booked another tour for the summer and um and they're doing it well it's a real testament to those songs right i mean i'm always amazed when bands like sublime can lose such a key member but still carry on i mean it's really uh, people want to hear those songs right yeah they do and i i think that's that's the most important thing to focus on if you want to be successful in the music business as a musician mm-hmm you have to have good songs. You're, you know, you really great songs will move mountains, and um, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's amazing, Todd. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. It's a fascinating uh, story. I have a feeling uh, my listeners are going to get a lot out of it. I think you have a a really unique perspective on the music business that that most musicians don't have. So, Todd, thank you so much for doing this. You bet. Thanks for having me, and look out for Jelly of the Month Club. It's uh, half of Sublime and some other great players uh, as well, and we're, we've got a full-length album coming out soon. So if people want to find out more about that project and about your music, what's, uh, where can they go to learn more? Sure. Uh, we do have a, we're building a uh, webpage, jellyofthemonthclubband.com, so look for more things. Our first single is going to come out soon, and we do have a Facebook page. You can come like us there. And uh, my own music is on Reverb Nation. Okay. And uh, and hopefully elsewhere as I take your course. It's really a fantastic course, by the way. And I'm learning a lot and making a lot of great connections. So I appreciate the focus. That's awesome. And you and I will will, will talk more about uh, about the course and licensing later. But uh, thanks so much, Todd. So jellyofthemonthclub.com. Yeah, jellyofthemonthclubband.com and jellyofthemonthclub on Facebook. Okay, I will put links up on my site so people can learn more about that project. And that's you and the drummer, or, or now former drummer from Sublime. That's correct. Okay, and, uh, awesome. And three other dudes. <laughs> and, yeah, of course. Awesome. Well, listen, Todd, again, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Have a, have a great day. Thanks. You too, Aaron. Okay, Todd. Take care. You too. Bye. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you, are you still there? So after that um, fascinating conversation with Todd Foreman about his time playing with, with Sublime and, and his uh, story, it occurred to me after we hung up that it, it would be really cool to play one of, one of the tracks from the Jelly of the Month Club, Todd's uh, new project with the uh, former drummer of Sublime. So I emailed him and I said, Todd, can you, uh, can you send me a track, that you know one of the tracks that you guys are working on? And he happily obliged so let's close the podcast out with jelly of the month club this is a track called brand new friend Ribbit. Ribbit. Ribbit.
just a bullfrog sitting on a lily pad singing a song. He's been hopping along all day. He loves to sing and play his guitar every evening in the swampy marsh all alone. Always. He never hung out on the lawn with any of the other frogs. For a while, he was on his own. Then one day, Mr. Firefly heard the frog and he stopped on by. He said, Hey there, frog, I'm a banjo player. Let's make this a duo. What do you say? The frog said, There's nothing like a brand new friend. So Mr. Bullfrog and Mr. Firefly singing their songs They're both playing along all day Ooh, They love to sing and strum those guitars Every evening in the swampy marsh and Then one day Mr. Bullfrog said Hey there, Mr. Firefly You think there's someone that we could find That knows how to play the xylophone Then right out of the Everglades Popped out Mr. Alligator He said, my name is Mr. Alligator As you know, and I love to play my xylophone Like a 